Um, hold on, hold on, everybody. Before we start, because I, I, my mind is so scrambled, uh, two hours ago when I realized that I just was not going to catch up with this class, I just said stop, and so I'm going to be well behind all of you guys, but that's okay. But I did want to. I didn't want to forget. I just want to start our class with um, this greeting: Christos Aneste. In the Greek world in which I grew up, we heard that every Easter: Christos Aneste from the Greek. We hear actually in the Catholic Church a lot: Christos Aneste is Christ is risen. Alistos Aneste means truly has risen. That was the exchange with which we greeted everybody on Easter. So, Christos Aneste, you guys, um, happy Easter. Um, I, I, I feel a little bit strange in having, um, a, you know, this meeting immediately the day after Easter, but I'm, but I'm so glad we are. I mean, it's Easter season. It's um, Easter's with us, and it's a, it's a glorious time. And whatever pains or suffering or difficulties, we all know where we are. Um, so just um, blessed Easter wishes for all of you guys. Okay. Francis, what are what are you laughing about? <laughs> Karen's background. Karen's, I, I oh, there's Mars. <laughs> Karen, you've been you've been with this group long this long and have not learned to not listen to that guy when he does this. <laughs> yeah. I have. I almost want to Which be one do you like the best? <laughs> God. Oh. Okay, Karen, I'm 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 going to block you out. I'm going to close the picture if you keep. Oh, would you stop? Oh, oh God! I like the cosmos myself. It's the most fun I've had at one of these meetings. Oh God! Would you stop? Would you behave? No. Oh gosh. So Bob, where were you? Julie, hi, or wait, Debbie, wow, the the two of you have missed some real comedy here. Oh, um, Karen's been taking us through all of her backgrounds, and we went from a beautiful forest stream setting to to Mars and Star Wars. I, yeah, I don't even know what the Lego. Oh, God, I like the cosmos picture myself. Hi, Julie. Good to see you. Um, Let's, Debbie, I see your, I think it's your name, I see your name, but um, it's, um, are you here, is that, is that Debbie? Yeah, yeah, Debbie, it's good, um, it's good to have you with us again. I'm here. Good, good, hi, good to hear your voice and I'm glad you're with us. Uh, and happy Easter to everybody, I, I just expressed my wishes in the Greek and with which I was raised and the Greek expression. We have these traditions here and Suzanne's been really good about holding on to them. She's pretty tough about this stuff. Um, we have lamb spaghetti, which is an old, it's a, it's a Greek Easter meal. It is probably the best meal you, anybody could ever taste. It's really good. And the tradition is on Easter after the meal, we all crack eggs. We hard, she hard boils them, um, dyes them red. The egg is a symbol of Christ's tomb, and we crack eggs. 
and you always begin the cracking by saying Christos Anesti, and the other person says Alathos Anesti. He's so risen, truly he's risen. The red egg symbolized the tomb. The tomb, they symbolize the tomb, and you <coughs> crack it to open it. Well, that's the religious meaning. Once it gets started in our family, the, the competitive character <laughs> takes over everybody, and kids are going at it wildly to see who can come out with the best egg. So, so <laughs> I don't know if that's completely with the, in keeping with the Easter spirit, but... Anyway, it's good, it's good to see you all, and I'm glad we're here in Easter season, um, particularly glad. Um, any prayer, any prayer request tonight? I have one. <clears throat> My husband's oldest brother died earlier today. Oh. So if you could pray for Gary Blackwood. Siri's name, Karen? Gary. Gary? Gary. Gary. How old was he? Was this expected? 71. Uh, <clears throat> He's had uh, complications from diabetes. And he had to have both of his legs amputated oh, last oh, week. Wow. Gee, and they didn't, he didn't do well and they didn't expect him to survive. Wow. Wow. Well, you have our prayers. Thank you. More than our prayers. I think you have our hearts too. Anybody anybody else? Anybody else? Can we ask how Karen's dad is? Karen, how's your dad? He's doing better. I'd like prayers for him too still. He's seen a cardiologist and they said um, his heart is not damaged, that there's a blockage into the back of his heart. He's trying to avoid surgery to get a stent, but he's easily tired. So I think he might be considering that. What's his, <laughs> his name again? Dick. Dick, yeah. He can't be young either, Karen. How old He's is he? He's 84. 84, yeah. Yeah, we've had a tough couple of weeks. <laughs> well, it's so, I mean, it, it's so much more common for us because of our age. Tracy and Mark are too young to know, but... It's a little closer to home when it starts to be your siblings instead yeah. of your parents. Yeah. It's it's strange because I don't ten, fifteen years ago it, it seems a lot I mean it sometimes it feels unreal for me to be alive. And I'm, I'm you can laugh at that, Suzanne's laughing. Because you reach an age. I remember when we reached the age when we said we're next because of all of the all of our elders were gone. Um, which meant we were next and there comes a time when you know <laughs> your days are numbered um, anybody else for prayers so can I add a little thing I learned sure. that's kind of relevant to what Karen's going through um, I was looking I have this new word on fire gospels have you heard of it Yep. and it has the via pulchritude is that right um, it's got sections on art because art communicates the Lord and uh, there was, uh, I was looking at it yesterday, and there was a painting, an altar painting. Um, and they have, altar paintings had panels at the top, and then a panel that went across the bottom, like a, so panels, and then like one at the bottom. And the one at the bottom on this one, I don't have it, or I would tell you what, but anyway, it showed Christ taken down from the tomb. And at the seam of the panel, the bottom there was one seam and the artist specifically put his legs cut off at the knees 
in one section of the panel and then his body, knees and body in the other. Because it was at, um, I guess, some kind of hospital, St. Anthony Hospital. And they were treating patients who had some kind of skin disease that caused them to have to have their legs amputated. Mm -hmm. And they wanted the patients to know that Christ um, commiserated with them, experienced that with them. So that just, when you said that, calls to mind that image of, of our dead Lord there with his legs, you know, um, divided. They were supposed to, they were going to break his legs too, you know, at the end. So, yeah. But, um, Tracy, just so you know, that's interesting. We have been following um, Bishop Barron's readings for a long time, for years. I used to take his works to the gym, um, Seeds, and um, something, Illuminations, I can't remember the name. But they're little short essays, and, and I so much, I just felt that we were both doing the same thing, even, even though, you know, he's more prominent, and, but he was, he was dealing with popular culture and, and principally art, movies, books, lectures, and, you know, three, four page essays in all of them, but always responding to something in a way that um, brought a dimension of Christ into it that ordinarily people wouldn't see. So both of us have um, a lot of respect for what he's doing. And um, we have his gospels. Suzanne reads the gospel readings every morning. Um, <laughs> they just open up an academic section for the Word on Fire publications. And it's one of the things I've got on my mind with this book. I would be so grateful, you guys, for your prayers for that, um, truly. Um, I love the work that they do, and so does Suzanne. Um, it's funny you should mention that. It's I just I think what they're doing is really good. Um, so um, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Lord, for this time together again. This gathering of witnesses, God, this gathering of witnesses to you. Um, we offer special thanks tonight for um, the last 40 days um, of our lives. What a great grace to be asked to pick up our crosses, to undertake a discipline, to put ourselves away, to learn to discipline those weaknesses and sins that we all have and struggle to put them away. For our weaknesses, whatever failures, pardon us please. Um, just to be asked to do that and to do that with each other, to know that we're doing this together even if we don't see each other. What a great grace to, to know that we have the support of other people doing these things so that we have a help we can't always give ourselves. So for the grace of this last 40 days and particularly the Triduum, um, the darkness that began on Thursday night that carried through um, the evening with the cross and finally Easter vigil and Easter morning. For the joy of being with you in that crucifixion and in your resurrection, there aren't enough words. Um, none. 
I ask a special blessing that um, each of us carry with us, continue to carry forward that work we did of discipline to carry it forward in what we do in this coming year so that we we know, believe in our hearts, whatever's going on, even with our weaknesses, that we are rising, sharing in your risen life. The great joy of Easter is you're having risen, you're coming life again. Help each of us to share that, carry it with us, um, to know that in some ways, whatever we do with you is involves a rising. So let us take a joy in that. Carry it forward in all we do, um, particularly through dark times. I ask for a special um, grace for Karen's dad, um, her father. Um, be with him in this trial. He's not young. His, um, his end is coming. Strengthen him in his faith. Let his heart more completely open to the degree to which he's in any suffering or worry. Um, I ask for a special grace for Karen special grace for her. Um, she obviously carries all of this with her. Um, let her heart be quieted and strengthened um, with these difficulties her father's going through. And for Gary, um, receive him into your kingdom, um, whole, whole. Um, grace perfects nature, that's one of our key beliefs, grace perfects nature. Nobody will enter the kingdom, not whole, legs or not. We know people who um, who came out of the war with no legs. There's no way they won't dance in heaven. Their legs will be returned. So let us be glad um, for him. Receive him into your kingdom. Wash away his sins. Um, let everybody take a joy in that passing. Um, trusting in in you. It's our great faith that we can do something in our prayers that none of us can do alone um, with all of our efforts. So receive him into your kingdom and once again quiet um, Karen's um, heart. And I ask a special blessing on her. Do something with her taste in art backgrounds. Would you please um, help her um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Okay. End of Ash Wednesday. If you can pull it out. I'm going to just quickly recall. I don't want to take too much time with this. Um, remember the, the poem opened... Ash Wednesday, it was the entrance into Lent. So um, it takes the form of a lament, an expression of sorrow. It's, um, it's an expression of um, that moment when a man um, undergoes a conversion and turns from the world um, with all the mysteries that that entails, what, what will be asked of him. So remember, it began with because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, it goes on. Desiring those things of the world, because he'd reached a point of knowing, those things won't satisfy. None of them will. Wealth, money, security, pleasure, whatever they are. 
In the next to the last section in um, five, um, sorry, um, it's a, a to me it's a it's a continuation into the darkness, and the dark gets deeper. Um, and he begins, if the lost world, or if the lost word is lost, he's speaking now aware of a post-Christian world. We are centuries away from the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages. We are centuries into the world of modernity. And it's a world, in, in, af particularly after the, Re the Reformation, Christendom underwent a shipwreck. It, it fell apart under the weight of modernity. So we're several centuries into the modern world, and we're left with all the problems that that breakup has left us with. So it's a world in which people no longer hear the word. They're, lots of them deny it. Um, lots refuse. Um, and some who hear it choose not to believe it anyway. So he begins, if the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word, the word unheard. I, I think I reminded everybody, one of the beauties of the poetry at this moment, you could miss it, but it, I don't want to miss it. He's a poet, and if you listen to these puns, there's special words in English I don't want to use. There's special words for different kinds of punning. But in this case, it's, it's punning on words that have the same sound, but different meanings. And the beauty of it is this, if words have the same sound but a different meaning, it's as if those same sounds suggest they have one word in, one sound in common. It's like an er word, the word, the matrix, the center. So it's no accident that he's playing with things. There, it, it's a way of verbally expressing what he means conceptually. Is that clear? Nope. Mark, ask a question. Don't. So look, so the word is unspoken unheard. Still is the unspoken word, the word unheard. All those rhyming. The word without a word, the word within the world and for the world, and the light shone in the darkness against the word, the unstilled world, still world. So there's a play on still. Still has two different meanings. Um, the, the unstilled, it's still moving, still world. So it's still and moving about the center of the silent word. Because remember, the son is with the father unheard in that dimension. We're separated from it, even if, even if we have some sense of it from the prophets. It still isn't of an order. That's the music of the spheres. It's the heavenly kingdom. So the punning is not an accident. It's a way of reinforcing in sounds a truth. Okay. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? <coughs> well, <we're coughs> sorry. Where will the word resound? Hear the sounds? This, these sounds keep repeating as if they had the same source. They came from the same thing, even though they multiply. Not here, there is not enough silence. He goes on and on. Will the veiled sister pray for those who walk in darkness, who choose thee, chose thee and oppose thee, those who are torn on the horn between season and season, time and time, between hour and hour, 
word in word, power in power. You can hear the words um, repeating, resounding. Who will, who will not go away and cannot pray? Pray for those who choose and oppose. O my people, what have I done unto thee? With a veiled sister between the slender yew trees, pray for those who offend her and are terrified and cannot surrender. Surrender, offend, surrender. Um, and affirm before the world and deny between the rocks in the last desert before the last blue rocks the desert in the garden the garden in the desert of draught spitting from the mouth and the withered apple seed O oh my people it's a poem it's modern in this sense it doesn't it, it this is going to go to our work tonight it's what we're going to do with um, the violent beard away um Elliot's not giving um, a coherent argument or statements he breaks things up they're fragmented <laughs> Tracy <laughs> I just think how in the world do you do this with this is art the statements are fragmented it's modern art because we've lost a sense of coherence and narrative poets don't write in narratives um, stories aren't told in, sequ in sequence um, the Violet Bared Away is not going to do that. We're going to step into a different kind of novel tonight. But underneath it, behind it, is this still point, this coherent word. Okay. So the fragment in the fragment, the fragment in nature, is wonderful because it so often reflects our modern experience. It's the world we live in. This is section six, the concluding section of Ash Wednesday. Although I do not hope to turn again, although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, wavering between the profit and the loss, in this brief transit where the dreams cross, the dream cross twilight between birth and dying, bless me, Father, though I do not wish to wish these things. Sorry, you guys. Wait. Sorry. Um... The dream cross twilight between birth and dying, bless me, Father. Though I do not wish to wish these things from the wide window towards the granite shore, the white sails still fly seaward, seaward flying, unbroken wings. And the last heart stiffens and rejoices in the last lilac and the lost sea voices. And the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent golden rod and the lost sea smell quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling plover and the blind eye creates the empty forms between the ivory gates and smell renews the salt savour of the sandy earth this is the time of tension between dying and birth the place of solitude where three dreams cross between blue rocks but when the voice is shaken from the yew tree drift away let the other you be shaken and reply. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Our peace is his will. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, Spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee.
I just have one question. I, I really, I really like the poem to settle in on you guys. Just, you know, it, I, I urged you all to, you know, to pick up the four quartets and Ash Wednesday and read them at night. Read, read them together. You know, let them be heard together with somebody. Read them to yourselves. They're beautiful meditations. Um, the one question I just want to ask all of you, just for, and I don't want to spend much time on it. I want to, I want to let the poem have its place. Remember the poem began with all those dependent clauses? Because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because I do not hope to turn. It goes on again and again. All of those dependent clauses begin with because. Now, in the last section, all of these sentences begin once again with adverbial clauses. Thinks that's, if I remember my grammar. Adverbial clauses. Except it's not because, it's although. Although I do not hope to turn again, although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, it goes on and on like this. What's the difference between because I do not hope to turn and the be um, his beginning, this final section with although I do not hope to turn? That's a change. A change is marked with the differences in those adverbial clauses. They're still dependent clauses. Somebody fill out what's the independent clause that follows, although I do not hope to turn. Tracy, you, I'm going <laughs> to, you did it last time, I thought, wonderfully, and you just, and I know I'm picking on you, and you had to spend a day writing a proposal, and somebody's going to pick on you now. What, <laughs> supply, supply the, the independent clause, can you take a rough get, a stab at it? What's the difference because I do, because I do not hope, and although I do not hope. Well, the thing that comes to my mind, I spent some time thinking about the other ones, you know, and it was more, it was kind of like you came up with the, I do this because this. Um, but although, the thing that comes to mind is I desire this, although I do not. You know, like, like a, like a not presuming over something that you want. What's the difference be between the adverbs, although and because? Clearly, what's, what is because express and what does although express? <laughs> you guys didn't expect to have a, a grammar class, did you? Uh, because expresses a reason and although expresses a contrast. Can you flesh that out? You're, you're right. Can you flesh? Because I'm not sure that it's obvious to everyone. We don't think, people don't ordinarily think about it. But can you flesh that out some, Jolie? I think that's Jolie, yeah? Yes, sir. Um, like, I stopped at a stop sign. I'm going to mute everybody. I'm anyway. sorry. Ju hold on. Hold on. Hold on, Jolie. I'm muting everybody. Just, just there's something. Can you, can you do that again, Julie? Um, unmute yourself and say it again, because we didn't hear it clearly. Sorry, are you there? Jolie? Dang. Can anybody help out here? Well, is it because a, almost like a factual statement? It happened to because, it's, done, it's already a, a past tense or a done act, and although is something that 
might happen, might be true, might not be true, right? It's almost, uh, I guess, factual versus possible. Julie was, or sorry, Jolie was right on. She said, because expresses a reason, um, I studied all night because I wanted to ace the exam, or I spent the day writing a proposal because I I take this really seriously and I want it to pass. You know, um, um, I, I, um, I did the things that I did during Lent because I want to grow closer to, it gives you a reason, yeah? Although expresses contrariety, Although I studied for the exam, I didn't make it. Um, although I do not hope to turn again, I will. Or although I do not hope to turn again, um, um, although I, how, somebody filled that in. Although I do not hope to turn again, I I'm going to do everything I can not to. It expresses contrariety, opposition, right? Although I. Um, Although I have a weakness, although I have a weakness, I'm going to do everything I can to um, correct it. Right? It expresses contrariety. Why is this appropriate? Is that clear for a second? Well, let me leave it. I think because why is this appropriate for the end of the poem? How does it how does it stand up against the beginning? What's happened from the opening stanza to this? Susanna's giving me one of those dark looks, so I've got to take this seriously. She's just asked for the poem. Fred, what do you, what's your response to this? I think in the beginning, it's because I do not hope to turn, I'm, I'm going to do something to try to prevent it. And at the end, it's almost like, an exception, an acceptance, or an acknowledgement that this, you know, because I, I, I may not, I may not hope to turn again, but probably I will. And you know, it's 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 something that is unavoidable, but I'm going to do my best to to prevent doing it. Doug, you've got a thought. I don't know. I uh, I I do not know. Um, can you guys hear okay? I'm, I'm wondering whether um, the I do not hope to turn again um, is necessarily the same turning that he's talking about in the beginning. You mean the although? No. The, where where so are you now? Although, so because is the reason, as a cause effect. In the beginning. In the beginning. Right. Although is the contrary. Um, I do not hope to to turn again. I'm wondering whether the hope to turn again, the turn again, is the same turn again as at the beginning, or whether it's changed. But what's the difference now? Um, although I do not hope, isn't that the although I do not hope to turn yeah. again? Yeah. Um, what about faith? Although I do not hope again, maybe uh, the contrary would be. Although I do not hope turn hope to turn again, I will. Because it isn't, isn't it a conversion point? Mm -hmm. So maybe at the end, and he is saying, "I will." 
Turn again? Well, turn again. Hi. Go ahead. Turn again could be um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still thinking about it. Any, any last thoughts? Although I do not hope to turn wavering between the profit and the loss in this brief transit. Um, the dream crossed twilight, the lost heart stiffens, rejoices, the lilac, this is the time of tension between dying. Seems to me here at the end, he stepped into a world in which um, he's going to be facing oppositions and contraries and temptations all the time. And um, and although he although he does not hope to, turn, I just wonder if I mean I I can't remember if it was Mark's word or somebody sorry <coughs> that um, that it, or I think it was um, Tracy's that I can't remember how you said it Tracy but that um, he may fall you know he may trip or stumble um, in which case um, he's going to fall back on his faith. Um, no matter what's going on, because without that he can't do anything. This is the time of tension between dying and birth, the place of solitude where three, I mean, it's a place of all these con um, conflicts. When the voice is shaken from the yew tree, drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, teach us to be still, even among the rocks, our peace is his will. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, spirit of the river, of the sea, suffer me not to be separated. It's a plea for help. It's a prayer. Acknowledging that he's in a world of turns and changes. And um, he knows he will be there. But it ends with a plea. It's an expression of his faith. And I think more than that, his weakness. His acknowledging his need for help. Any last thoughts on it before we... It's a beautiful Lenten um, poem. It's a wonderful poem of a turn. Um, if, you, if, if you take the beginning, if I'm right on that, when he says, because I do not hope to turn, he's turning away from... Christianity has become conventional. He, he's one with Melville, Dostoevsky, Hawthorne, you name the writers. Um, Melville turning away from that world, call me Ishmael, he's an outcast, he doesn't belong to it. The Christian world is in collapse. The 19th century was a period of real crisis between a Christian way of reading the world and secular, biblical, scientific, or mechanical, or technical. Um, Eliot belongs to that same world. It's, um, it's a world in which the voice, the word, is not heard. It's silenced. People reject it. Um, it's an appeal for help, a turn to help, um, a turn towards others for help to God. You know, um, so it belongs so much with so many of the works we've been reading. We're in a non-Christian world. Um, it's to go back to the point I started to make a minute ago. It, because I do not hope, it, what he's doing is turning away from the convention, because Christianity has become respectable, conventional, dead. It's dying. It's dying. When people use faith, hope, and charity, they don't use those words to carry the meaning they used to have. Um, people use them in a temporal way. We've talked about that. 
So the beginning of the poem is that turn into darkness. He comes out of it at the end um, with an appeal to God for help. To, to Mary, the mother. So he's situated exactly where he should be in one sense in, in the terms of the poem itself. Um, it's a beautiful poem. Any last thoughts before we um, start? In both the beginning and Sorry, the, go ahead. Doug. In both the beginning and the end, he's making a statement about what he's not going to do. Because I do not hope. Can you, can you guys hear Suzanne? Go ahead, Doug. You speak because up. I do not hope is a statement. I do not hope, therefore this. Although I do not hope is still a statement he doesn't hope to turn again. But. 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 Um, so he's doing the right thing. He's not giving himself to hoping for the wrong thing. But he's going to be facing all of these contrarieties. Right. Right. Could you all hear Suzanne? You got a thumbs up from Tracy. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. <laughs> Anybody else? I was thinking of Judas as being the opposite of that, because I think Judas would have said, um, although I hope to turn, I won't, <laughs> and he didn't. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's incorrect. Maybe he was just completely unmotivated and didn't. Uh, turned back to the Lord when he betrayed yeah. him. But um, I just thought that was, you know, I thought, I wonder what would be the opposite of, um, although I do not hope to turn, yeah. I desire to. And uh, I thought the opposite of that sounds like Jesus. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You, I mean, I might, might, if I, I mean, my sort of phrasing of that, um, Jolie, would be to give Judas his credit. I mean, he he was in some sense doomed from the start, but I mean, I, I wonder if it isn't. It, my take on it would be, although although I although I plan to be faithful to God, um, I don't know, and I won't because finally, even though he's, I mean, he was with him, you know, for so long, but Christ knew he'd betray him. I'm not sure that Judas did till the end. They had those signals, you know, when he said these these thirty pieces could be spent on the poor, and he's using it as an excuse. There's something wrong with him all along. Although he's he's with Christ the whole time, it's just a it's a tortured soul to try to get into. Um, but for sure, it was the opposite of Christ. Okay, let's let's start. Um, Flanner. Oh, oh no, let me quick. Uh, any any last thoughts on Pericles? Any reflections anybody's come to since we finished it last week? It's a wonderful play, I think. Any. Anything, any thoughts that you guys came away with from the play? Mark, don't raise your hand. Mark, no, you've been I haven't long. listened to last week's um, recording yet, but as I finished it, I was expecting, I guess I expected more from all of the buildup you gave it <laughs> about him finding his daughter right. and finding his wife and, every, you know, you know, yeah, unicorns and rainbows, and everybody's all happy. Right. Um, but 
I guess I didn't, and I went and looked, because I was actually reading on the plane as I was going there and coming back, and I went back and I was looking through the passages for that one, you know, oh, wow, passage, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, yeah. So it, did I, what did it, so what did I miss? No, I, Mark, I don't, honestly, I don't think you missed anything, truly. I, I think your reading is in lots of ways faithful. Um, I, 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 I read it differently. Um, God, how to explain this? I try to do everything I can to get myself out of the way when I read so that I'm with that writer, not imposing my ideas or expectations. We just came out of Lear. Lear is, I think, probably the most painful play of all of Shakespeare's plays. It's the most tempestuous. It's the most titanic. There's a largesse about it. You know, um, we get into Lear's psyche and uh, Edmund's and Gloucester's. Um, we penetrate into people's lives. Pericles is a very different work. It, it's a completely different work. And and um, I, I think one of the reasons I said it was good to see you again, because I, I think you weren't here last week, if I remember. And, and I was aware that you missed it. Um, but what I would suggest is this about the play. Here, here's my comment. If, if all of you will go to the, our link and click on the, on the O'Connor, or Pericles and O'Connor site, this is one of the statements that I made about, about Pericles, and I'll read it again here. The action of Pericles can be described as that of a man whose misfortunes helped him escape the degrading condition of being a child of his age. He stands outside of all regimes, influences. Um, he's giving us a picture of somebody who constantly suffers at the hands of these regimes without being engulfed by them. The one thing you can say about Lear is that's, that's not true of him. He is so completely one with his regime. He suff the, the whole point of the play is we learned that there were awful things that Lear did that he didn't even see, he wasn't aware of. And when he makes the decision at the beginning of the play, we have to follow them out in a way that makes, that um, reveals his soul, his whole inner being, and the effects on people, his daughters. Um, and we watch his influence play out. So the, the whole play, play takes us into the depths of the main characters, all of them. That's not true in Pericles. We never get inside of him. Um, so the, the, one of the differences between the two plays as I read them is that there's a completely different spirit. In the one, we enter into the depths and they're volcanic. In the other, we're removed. And it seems to me um, that one of the things Shakespeare is offering us in this play is the kind of experience that happens when you suffer the things of the world without getting drowned in them. And um, it seems to me that's what, that's who Pericles is as a character. And a couple of things in support of that. Remember the play is narrated by Gower. Gower is a poet two centuries old. He's narrating a play that he had written himself and that he took from writings before him. So we're getting the play Pericles several times told over, but now we're getting it from Gower, who lived two centuries before. So we're getting, we're, this is really interesting, we're getting, a lit, we're getting what in a sense is a dead play. It belongs to the past, 
But Gower's bringing it into the present to make it living now, but he's detached from it. So in this play, it seems to me the, the wisdom of it, if I can use that word, is that in this play, Shakespeare is doing everything he can to not draw us into the interior. He's doing everything he can to draw us out to answer those attachments, because so often those attachments in us cause problems. And one of the, wait, just one, let me just finish, Mark. Uh, it, one, I mean, if I can relate this to our faith, we hear this all the time in homilies and in Christ, that we're supposed to hate the world, we're supposed to detach ourselves, that it's our attachment to the world, we get too attached to things, and we don't see the consequences of those attachments. Pericles is a character who suffers from every one of those regimes, whatever his experiences with them are, but persists, St. Paul's words would be endures. He endures. And if I'm reading this correctly, it seems to me that because of that, it leads him to the <coughs> special experience at the end. And I would describe it in, in these terms, that um, when he discovers Marina, um, you guys disagree here, if you, but it seems to me what he's showing us is that when he recognizes Marina, he sees her for the first time as she really is. When he and his wife meet at the end, the same thing, in my beginning is my end, that they learn to see each other differently because of all they've experienced. And I, I'm assuming that that's why I call it a paradisal experience. That when it, hope, if any of us reach heaven, when that happens, we won't look at each other the way we did here. Our eyes will be opened. We will see with a depth of wonder the Christ image and the person that we loved differently. So we will see them for the first time. Um, in that sense. So the recognition the scene, let me put this differently. Shakespeare does every can, everything he can to simplify characters here because he's not interested in characters. He's interested in what I'm trying to describe as this, the man who is not a product of his age, that stands, is in the world but not of it because of what that leads to at the end. And what happens at the end is extraordinary. We don't see that in any other play. Mark, go ahead. You've got a. Well, you said something about. Um, I'm not sure how you put it, but it wasn't. You know, not he, he suffered, but he didn't get brought down by it, right? Yeah. And that's not exactly what you said, but it's kind of what I can remember out of it. Um, but as I read this, there's a lot of, I guess, very bad things that happen. You know, starting from the beginning and all the way through. But it's right. not a dark play. Right. Right. No. I, I, I mean, at no sense that I, you know, when you read Lear or you read some other plays, you get like this is a dark play. Right. Right. Nothing about this was a dark play. Right. Right. Exactly. And I My, guess. I, I guess I'm just I'm just kind of realizing that you know you, I didn't think about it at the time, but you're kind of saying, oh, okay, you know, they're, they're, you're waiting for, you know, some Shakespearean dark thing to happen, and right. it never ever does, even though it's a bad um, episode or something. She gets carried off by pirates. Okay, that's not a good thing. Right. But it wasn't done in such a way that it was devastating and it crushed. Right. Right. You know, so, Mark, and let me just follow that up because I think I, I, you're you're wonderfully on. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm hearing that in the context of your saying <clears throat> some weeks ago. I mean, I was knocked over because you said it so forcefully and so well. 
but you were reading Oedipus and you said for the first time in your life you really understood what irony was you know because it was so dark so dark and it just hit you and we went to Lear or or um, um, it's Aeschylus you know in the um, the the Orestes cycle where eating children and you know we we were in a dark world I, I mean I think you've hit it wonderfully um, Shakespeare does not allow us to enter into that darkness here because that's not his concern. His concern, and I'm going to put this in Boethian terms, we, I mean, you know, we, I, don't want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but if you're living Boethius at that still point, you're suffering and still withdrawing from the world. And I think what he's showing is something like Christ, that you suffer. I, I don't remember a scene in Pericles in which Pericles isn't presented suffering. Maybe in the moment when he gets married to Thaisa, but even in that, you know, the prenuptial things when he's there at the court and he's won the jousting, he's presented as often a corner sad. He carries a heavy weight through the whole play. But it's not Shakespeare's purpose to go into that. His purpose is to say it's like it's like God is at work. Something is going on helping us to get to this end. So he never lets what you're calling this darkness, this tragic darkness, get a hold. This is not a tragic play. It belongs to the romances. Something miraculous is happening. And, and my, my reason for presenting it, I'm so glad you put it the way you did, isn't because you know, we're waiting for that, oh, aha. It's that it, gives, it, it leaves us with a very different spirit and a, diff- and a very different vision. It's as if it's saying, along with Boethius, that still point is always here whether we see it or not. The whole question is, can we endure? Can we suffer and hold on? And if we do, this. You know, the music of the spheres. The, the recogni- I think the recognitions are stunning because I think we're supposed to... You remember when he looks at, at um, Marina and says, thou, how do you put, thou, who, thou whom I begottest, begetting me, you, the creature I created, is now bringing me to life? You know, the words are stunning. I mean, he's, it's as if a new life is coming to him and being reunited with his daughter. There, I mean, it, it, the, the best way to put this is, if you've lost something, it's like the woman in the Bible, if you've lost something and found it again, you're going to love it more. If we lose, uh, th- this is the vision of the play. If we lose those things in life, this was my whole pitch. It's the Job story, but it's, dramatized differently, all those things that were taken away will be returned. And if they are because we lost them, we'll know the worth of them better when they're returned. It's as if we will see them for what they were. We won't have taken them for granted, or we won't take them for granted. It'll be like a gift to us. It's like so many of the things we take for granted in life, we'll see as they are. It's like seeing Christ. What's that line from Christ? Or no, sorry, from John's letter. Um, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll see him as we, we shall see him as he is because we will be like him. You know, it's that, it's, that, it's that moment when because we grow inwardly ourselves and become closer to Christ, we will actually see um, the person for who he is or she all those people we've loved and lost or you know whatever so to me it's a it's a play of a great faith it's it's not played up 
he, he just goes at it differently. He can't, he can't allow the things that go on in tragedies to happen here. It's a very, very different vision. Any other, any other questions or comments on Pericles? You guys just did my summary for me. Thanks. No? Any, any, any other things? Part of the beauty of it for me, I can't, I can't say it enough, is that it's paradisal in just that sense. That it, 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 he simplifies characters because his interest is not character, it's the spirit. That all those things that... Um, that means some... And how to put this? All of those things to which we give ourselves, attach ourselves, with not altogether good loves, in whatever way we lose them in life, they will be given back. That's at the heart of our faith. That's a paradisal vision. Um, it's, it's so much a matter of um, faith. And it seems to me what makes this place so significant for me is not that he goes into the character, it's that he does such a good job of expressing that faith. The way he uses Gower, um, the way in which, I mean, I think you put it really well, Mark, it's as if nothing happens, when all the, all the while something is happening, but it's not tempestuous, it's not blowing up, it's not getting into rage, it's not weeping hysterically, you know, it's not blaming, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. <laughs> um, it's not that. It's a, it's a very different spirit, very, very different. It's, cl it's closer to the spirit of mystics. It's closer to the spirit of the church fathers. You know, something I think's a spirit they carry to their deaths, to their um, martyrdoms, lots of them. Ah, this is in Flannery O'Connor. When Daniel faced down the lions, how in the world did he do that? I, I cannot picture Daniel losing it. Or when Jost, this is from Planner Carter, when Jost, when Jost asked the, the sun to stop, I, I mean, I can't picture Moses, you know, for water, these are from Planner Connor, Moses striking the rock. I cannot imagine dramatic scenes. Um, Daniel was not hysterical when he stared down the lions. You know, the, what, what's going on in those moments is this extraordinary quality. It's closer, it's closer to Paul when Paul is undergoing all these persecutions and he keeps, he never lets his problems become the focus of his letters. His, his mind and heart are somewhere else. So he keeps going from suffering to suffering to suffering, whatever the regime. In some sense, it's almost, remember, all the regimes that, that are a part of this play are those regimes that were close to those that Paul visited. They're all in the Eastern Mediterranean. Paul went from regime to regime to regime, suffered again, 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 and kept going in peace, celebrating his suffering. I mean, he says in letter and letter, I, t I take a joy in my suffering. So it's a very different spirit. Very, very different spirit. Very different play. It belongs to that small handful of plays at the end of Shakespeare's life, whereas as if his, his spiritual vision has deepened He's past the tragedies. He carries the tragedy. He knows tragic. He knows the darkness. But um, he's 
come to see something else as well. Okay. Can we... Any other comments before we get to O'Connor? Okay. Just a couple of thoughts here. Wait, I've got to make a confession too. I don't I don't plan to do much but just introduce O'Connor. Um, I didn't, I'm not well along in it, so I have to make that confession. And I'm trusting that most of you are not either because you all had Easter. I don't, I don't know whether you are. I mean, some of you may have finished it, but what I'd like to do tonight is just introduce some things and start a reading and then, you know, spend the next week or two or however long we're going to spend on it, um, two weeks or three weeks. Just a couple of comments, um, that are personal before I, before I talk about O'Connor and, uh, the work we've done on her and what we're doing in the Violent Beard Away. I'm reading this, I, I've said this to you, it's just a surprise. I, I, you, I, you guys cannot imagine the gift that you are to me. And I'm saying that with a humility that's just genuine. Um, I had not done Murder in the Cathedral for 20 years. I can't even remember the last time I did it. And I remember being knocked over by it. And so glad to have done it with you guys. Um, I can say the same thing about Dante and something else that's I can't remember. I, we did Chaucer together, and I, you know, I did Chaucer twenty years ago. I haven't done Flannery O'Connor in twenty years, and it's knocking me over. It it's a it seems to me it's a story that convicts. I'm not kidding. It's a it's a it's a story that speaks so directly to our faith, and I think this it's leaving us with a question. Are we taking seriously our call to be a prophet? Remember our call, our call, our call from Christ in our church is you are prophets, priests, kings, priests, prophet, kings. How many of us slipped in, how many have slipped into a conventional Christianity? I mean, I, I can't ask the question without sort of shuddering myself. The, the, the story deals more directly with the life of a prophet, the struggle of a young boy um, who does everything he can to avoid God. It's like the Jonah story again. And then something happens. And the, the whole story is about that short period of a few days in which this crisis that's been building all of his life comes to a head. So it, it focuses intensely on this struggle to to receive this calling so it to me it's one of the most direct challenges to the catholic faith that i know of how many catholics are going to read it that way not many lots of the secular world i think you got my note didn't you the secular world has put it on its index it's one of those books you're not supposed to read she uses all these racial terms and her vision is um strange they, they, it's one of those, what do you call it, when, when you compliment but you're really slapping somebody, pay faint praise or something like that. You know, one of the, one of the ways in which criti or critics dismiss her is by saying, this is a story about the Southern Gothic. It could not be farther from the truth. This is not about Southern Gothic. It's about the place of religion in the modern world and the, and the fact that we've lost a Christian view of things and it's presented us with these problems. We met that again and again and again. 
in Greenleaf, Revelation, The Heart of the Park. What what other those are the those are the good man good man is hard to find about the misfit. Every one of those stories dealt with this essential the essential place of a Christian vision in a world that's no longer Christian. And I, I think um, The Violent Bear It Away is her, is her most complete treatment of that theme. And in some ways it focuses it in a way that she never does in her other stories because it's about accepting a call, being called to do something as a Christian. And everything that young Tarwater does to resist it and then reaches a point where he finally accepts it. So it's a, it's a, for me, it's a profoundly moving. So I'm glad to be reading it at this age. Um, I remember reading it 20 years ago, not feeling as deeply, I, even though I know I felt deeply about it. But I'm just glad to be reading it again. So just a, a note on Flannery O'Connor, and then I'd, I'd like to, I'd like, I've got a couple of questions about what she's her method, and then I'd like to read from a couple of passages, but I want to make this brief tonight. Um, she was born in 1925 in Savannah, Georgia. She was an only child. Um, she loved literature at an early age, and her father encouraged her to write. So at an early age, she was already doing writing. One of my most memorable scenes of her from the reading I've done is, I, I think it was, it was either in her high school um, years or her college years, she was editor of the school newspaper, and she wrote a note to everybody saying um, something to this effect. I'm not going to get the words right, but it's something to this effect. We're going to speak the truth as we know it. Um, some of you may not like it. Some of you may like it. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. Crumple up the paper and put it in the wastebasket on your, in the wastebasket on your way out. <laughs> she had that fearless spirit of bringing the truth from the time she was really young. She just was not given to doing things to please people. Another incident that I remember in the in the things that I read about her ages ago is that she she raised peacocks. She loved the you know peacocks. She had several on her farm. And she described the pe peacocks in terms of Christ because she said there are these moments when the peacock feathers, you all know this, they will have these moments when suddenly they will spread and from nothing there will be this rainbow of colors, this beauty of colors. And she said there was no coaxing them to do it. It was like saying, Christ, do this for me. Do this. Be nice. When I want something, give it to me. She said you could not do that with the peacock. They, they flowered when it was their will. And for her, it was an image of Christ. We just couldn't manipulate Christ or put, Father James used to say, all the time, put in a quarter and get out whatever it is we wanted. She had this deep sense that graces were mysterious and we either moved with them when they were offered or we were missing moments. Um, so she, she, from an early age, she had this love of writing and telling stories. Her father encouraged her in it. Um, her father died from lupus. Describe lupus, Doc. It's an autoimmune. Describe that. Can you all hear, Doc? It's an autoimmune disease. I don't know very much about it. It's an autoimmune disease. I think it attacks the joints. Um, I don't know why you die of it, but you do. Yeah. Or you can't. Anybody want to add anything? Does anybody know? 
Her father died of it, and she so died young. She died very young. She had lupus. Yeah, it's just said. Yeah, um, she, after graduation from high school, she went to a um, a writing program in Iowa, and I'm not sure of this, but if I if my memory serves me right, the writing program there in Iowa was was supposed to be the best in the country, and there were a number of teachers there who were um, great artists. Um, John Crow Ransom may have taught there. I'm not sure, but. Anyway, she went there to the writing program um, and published her first story in um, 1946. So she's just barely, she's just 20, 21. Um, she met friends there and she went to an artist colony in New York where she met a number of really important critics and later she moved to a, a farm in Connecticut to stay with um, Robert and Sally Fitzgerald. Robert Fitzgerald is, was one of the uh, translators of one of the um, the ancient dramas we read, um, and I, I I can't remember if he did an, um, a translation of the Aeneid, uh, but clearly a classical scholar and Catholic. Both of them were deeply Catholic. Um, but while she was there, she discovered that she had um, lupus, and she moved back to. Andalusia, in the in the letter that I sent you guys today, I, I put at the very bottom a link that I thought was a lovely description of the Andalusian home that she lived. It's just a beautiful home, and um, that's where she spent the last years of her life. Um, she published Wise Blood. It was her first novel, and it, it, um, it wasn't well received. And years later, um, she published um, The Violent Beard Away, which I think is her greatest story. Um, if you know anything about what's going on politically, you know that there's been a movement to put her on the index, the index of the woke culture, the left, the cancel culture, because of her, 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 her putting words in characters like nigger or white trash, or which to me is really silly because it would be a little bit like taking Shakespeare away because of characters saying bad things about Protestants or Catholics or, you know, anything. I don't know what her reception is right now. Um, she's generally thought to be one of the um, one of America's most important short story writers. That's a title I think that's deserved. Her short stories are extraordinary. I also think *Violent Beard Away* is, is is probably one of the best modern American novels, even though it's short. Um, she died in 1964 at a mother's home in Midgeville, and. Um, was awarded the National Book Award for her complete short story set um, after her death. Um, amazing that she did what she did in the in the little time that she had. For those of you who are interested in writing, and for those of you who are interested in seeing the connection between art and faith, I'm saying this, Tracy, with you a lot in mind, but all of you, she wrote a collection of essays called Mystery and Manners, I would recommend all of you read it. Um, to me, it's one of her finest pieces of collections of writing. She, she's, she's writing from the point of view of a, of a novelist teaching people about the art of writing. Their essays, their talks she gave at schools or you know, works that she published. But they're amazingly lucid, clear. They, ha they show her sense of humor. You know, the, the, we see it in, in the, the Violent Beard Away, her sense of irony. Everything she says is simple. It's in plain language. She's not pretentious at all. 
she loves St. Thomas. Um, she makes fun of herself in some of her essays. She, she says she got to a point in her life when she'd been reading St. Thomas. If you know anything about St. Thomas, you know he always says, whether something is true or not, this seems to be the case, this seems to be the case, this seems to be the case. On the contrary, this is so, this is the, so that, that's, every one of St. Thomas's questions, I've said this before, goes to existence. He never, he never, never asks what's so. To ask that question means you're already in a platonic world escaping the body. He never asks what so. He always asks whether something is. So his thinking always goes to existence because he knows God exists. It's an amazing. Anyway, she loves St. Thomas and she said she reached a point in her life where she, um, at night when she was done with her work, she'd go to the, to the um, light switch and say, whether I should turn it on or whether I should turn it off, whether I should turn it off, whether I should turn it off. <laughs> she had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, and I, and, I'm a, and I, from what I know, she would not have been an easy person to get along with. But if you were Catholic and um, genuine in your faith, you would have had a welcome heart on her. Just a very, very tough-minded woman. Um, okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to hold off. I've got some principles from Mystery and Manners that I want to give you, but I think I'll wait until next year because I want to... Next week. I mean, sorry, next week. Next week. <laughs> next week. Um, I'll, I'll go over some of them next week. I, I really want to get us to some things in the book. But I want to ask a question before we start tonight about her method. Um, let me see if I can do um, a, a rough job in trying to summarize this, this story. Help me out here, Doc. Um, you guys help me out too. I'd be glad for your help because as I said before, I'm, I'm just starting it again. I remember a lot of the story, but it, I'm reading it again and, and st still in the first section. So, couple of things. The story begins with um, young um, Francis Marion Tarwater burying his uncle who just died that day. He's starting, the, he's starting to dig the grave and what we get are all these flashback memories of um, moments when he engaged his father, or I mean, sorry, his great uncle, so that as, um, as we move through the narrative, we're, we're asked to piece together the history between his great uncle, Marion Tarwater, and young Tarwater. And if I, can, if I can go back to the beginning. You guys all got my note, I hope, where I, give, where I gave that background and the genealogy. Because if you have that, it should help a lot. Because I, I think the beginning is, can be really confusing. Um, but if I, if I can make a stab at it here, I'd say... The, the story historically begins. So there's the plot that we have, but there's also the real story behind it that we have to put together. The story behind it is this. Old Tarwater, um, early on, um, had in, believed that he was called to be a prophet, that he took Christ seriously. So immediately we're faced with the problem that somebody poses who takes Christ seriously, because lots of people are not going to like that and lots of people are going to say that person is mad. He doesn't fit in. There's something wrong with him. So Christians in our age, I mean, it's a little bit foolish not to be disliked because 
being a Christian means you're going to be against the world if you're following Christ. He took that seriously. He didn't like some of the things his sister was doing. He called her a whore. And he was constantly preaching at her. He would go to her house and preach to her. She kicked him out. She was disgusted, didn't like him. And his response was to be selective in the times that he went to preach to her. He chose the day when he knew her husband wasn't going to be there because I think his husband, her husband, would throw him out. Finally, she got so sick of him that, um, that she didn't want him to come anymore, and he came to the door and preached outside the door. And then came one day and pounded on the door, and she opened it. Inside the door was a doctor and um, a, a companion who, um, who had been listening to him, pounding outside the door, doing the preaching that was characteristic of him, and filled out these forms declaring him insane. So um, she had him instituted. He lived in the institution doing the preaching that he did until he finally realized that the only way he could get out was to stop preaching and he was released. Um, it was at that point that he, he kidnaps Raber, right, as a young boy? Um, or, or he did it before. No, he, he kidnapped young Raber as a, as a boy and took him to his um, forest house at Powderhead to baptize. His father came to get Raber and took him home, and Raber's experiences at that moment never left him. He, he remembered that in, in, uh, with mixed feelings about it. Um, we know that um, Tarwater's sister gave birth to Raber, and, and Tar Tarwater's sister gave birth to Raybar, Raber and a daughter, his, Raber's sister, and his sister was in a car accident when she was pregnant with young Tarwater. She died, and everybody else in the car died except Raber and young Tarwater. And that was not a small point for, for young Tarwater because it left him with a feeling that in some way he was special because of his circumstances. He was born in her death. So it was a, a fact that intensified his sense of being unique, um, different from other kids. Um, old Tarwater um, kidnapped young Tarwater when he was a child. So this is the second night, second time of a kidnapping. In this instance, Raber and a social worker came to get him. And when they came to the porch to take the boy back, the child, it was an infant, Old Tarwater had a shotgun and warned him not to approach the porch. And when Raber did, Old Tarwater shot him with a, with a shotgun and, when, um, and then shot him in the ear for good measure. So... Raber carried those wounds with him the rest of his life and reinforced his hatred for the old man. But don't forget in all this, young Raber had a brief time with old Tarwater, and during that time when he was baptized, enough was said to stick with him the rest of his life because Raber has all these memories of biblical passages and stories, but he does everything he can to disown them. Um, because of the negative feelings he has. So, um, old Tarwater raises young Tarwater, 
Um, Raber is not going to come back again after Old Tarwater does with the shotgun. And later, when he's an adolescent, a, a truant officer comes to get him because he's not been in school. And um, he asks Ray or young Tarwater to pretend that he's insane. So he comes out with his head, you know, shaking and googling and maybe spitting. And the truant officer realizes he doesn't want this kid in school anyway, and so leaves. So old Tarwater has raised young Tarwater in the ways of the faith. What young Tarwater knows are the stories from the Old Testament. He knows the prophets. And so one of the most important themes of this story is the, um, the way in which biblical stories um, stand in conflict to a secular way of looking at the world. Raber's whole way of looking at the world is a product of a secular world. It's scientific. It's based on scientific assumptions. He, he has, um, he, when um, Old Tarwater was released from the institution, he stayed with Raber for a time. Old Tarwater thought he'd be protected, and then he realized that Raber was just studying him, that he was using him for a case study. His way of putting it is that he wanted him in his head. Raber wanted to capture him like he could predict him, know what he was doing, explain him. So everything that Raber does is really reflects a Freudian, modern, scientific, psychological approach to the human being. He explains everything the old man does in terms of security complexes and, you know, things like that. So he's determined to do everything he can to reject that world. When he and the social worker Mary, her name is Bishop, they have a child and the child is... Um, What's the word? Retarded. Retarded, yeah. Old Water's way of looking at that birth is that it's a fitting judgment, um, you know, to give this couple, a, um, a, um, this child. He's determined not to baptism, or sorry, baptize him. So at the beginning of the story, that's the backstory. When it begins, it's, it's really important to see this. It begins with Old Tarwater's death. So everything that follows comes in response to that death because it leaves young Tarwater without his uncle, his great uncle anymore, facing this prospect of a calling because everything his great uncle did prepared him to live this religious life. So that's where the story begins. Okay, Raber's in the city, his wife left him, he's alone with the child, old Tarwater dies, and in the first section of the book, we get um, all of these flashbacks and um, memories of events that took place in the life between this great uncle and this young boy. Um, I, I want to open this for you guys in a minute for any questions, but I just want to say one thing to try to make this easier. Um, I think this is true. I, I, I'm going to make this provisional, but I think it's true. The novel's divided into three sections. If I remember this correctly. The first section has to do with Powderhead. So it's all about this relationship that the great uncle has with his great nephew, old Tar Marion Tarwater with young Francis. Everything that's associated with the country and a, and a removal from the city. When the first section concludes, um, the old man has died, um, young Tarwater thinks 
um, that he died um, in the house. When, just before he left the house, he put a, a fire to destroy everything about the past. He wanted to do everything he could to get rid of the past. So he sets fire to the home, thinking the old uncle is still in there. He doesn't know that one of the Negroes came along and buried him. And I want to, I want to read the passage because it's really powerful. So he sets the house on fire and flees. And the first section ends with him going to the city to visit his um, uncle, Raber. So the first section has to do with Powderhead in the country and this way of living that's um, in radical opposition to the city life. The middle section has to do with um, young Tarwater's experiences with Raber and everything that happens in the city. The third section, the concluding of the concluding section of the novel, um, is Raber's or sorry, old young Tarwater's return to Powderhead and what happens um, then. That's the structure of the novel, and and take that tentatively because I've I'm, um, I've I've got a I've got some work to do to recover it myself. But let me stop um, before before I. Um, mention some of the themes and then turn to some of the passages that I'd like to look at. Any questions about that background? About the genealogy? Because it gets, it gets a little bit complicated. Raber's sister had two children, Raber and, and um, a daughter. You just said Raber's sister. Da yeah, Raber's sister, a daughter. Um, um, old Tarwater called her a whore as well. She was pregnant, unmarried, and the guy that um, who was the father of young Tarwater committed suicide, took his own life shortly after the car crash. So it's really important to remember that, in a sense, he's, um, young Tarwater is a little bit like Billy Budd. Um, his origins are strange. He has no mother. He has no father. He was raised by his uncle and his um, great uncle. Um, so in a sense, he's an image of modern alienated man without roots um, um, in, the, in the sense of the story. It's, it's old Tarwater trying to protect his great nephew from the evils of city life um, and, and young Tarwater doing everything he can to resist his great uncle. But any questions about that genealogy? I think if you have that behind you, it 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 it, sh it should make for less confusion as you as you're reading through the story. Any no questions? I don't believe this. Has anybody started it? I'm I did. I'm Julie asked because she, Julie, have you finished it yet? Did you finish it? Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah. I I like all I like all her I like all her books. Yeah. All of her stories. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're very powerful. Yeah. But I love the way she writes. I just I just like her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anybody else? Um, Julie, can you add anything to that by way of genealogy? Anybody else? Okay, let's 
let's turn. I've, um, I've got. A, um, I'm. I'm. I hope everybody's at least started it. I've got a question that goes to Flannery O'Connor's method, because I want everybody to see this. Because you know that I've been saying from the like Pericles. I'm so glad for Mark's question. Pericles is a very different story from Lear. We have to read it differently. It, it's a very different story. I've been insisting from the beginning that we, we can't understand a work apart from its form. They're inseparable. You cannot. So in Pericles, we, we, have, we have to read that story aware that it only has life in Gower. Gower's narrating it to us. It's not a drama in the regular sense of a drama. It's being narrated. And Gower is surviving 200 years of death. He's alive in front of us, presenting a story from the past and making it living in the present. This is absolutely Boethian. To, 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 to come to that still point in the present moment. Because remember, in those passages of Boethius, he said, every present moment, every now, this is pure Boethian, every now is a parody of heaven. It's the only link we have with eternity. Each, each present moment participates in an eternal, timeless present. Because you know, in our life, every present moment is always fading. It becomes a shade of itself. It's in the past. It's gone. What I said five minutes ago is gone. We hold it in memory, but as an actual reality, it's gone. And the future is not yet. You know, that's why Eliot says... Um, before or after, as Christians, we're called to live in the present moment, here and now. That's where we find God. So one of the wonderful insights from Boethius was that each present moment is a parody of eternity. It imitates. It immortalizes that moment by fixing it in a work of art. There you go, Tracy. That's what art does. Um, sorry, where was it going? Oh, the, the form. So in Pericles, the whole story is given to us through Gower. We, we have to take that seriously. We just, otherwise, we're, we're literally in our heads and missing something. We're letting a, a habit of literalism get a hold of us. Ordinarily, we, we watch a drama and think it's on stage. Well, it is. But in Pericles, it's being narrated. We have to see it as having an existence in that narrator. It has to be seen in that terms. So we cannot separate a work from its form. Now, how would you describe Flannery O'Connor's narrative technique? I'm asking this really seriously. Fred, go ahead. I, I think we see in her form um, the impact that the past has on the present as you as you go through um, the young tar waters experience you know that first chapter I think you you see it very clearly there's not a moment goes by where you're not getting a sense of the past and the present occurring simultaneously yeah good for you friend just right on does anybody have any questions about that or how important it is let me, if I can, to underscore what Fred's saying, I just write on Fred. When you read a Jane Austen novel, and I, or let's see, let's, I'm trying to, Hawthorne, 
Hemingway's, uh, here, Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea, right? Take a Jane Austen novel. When you read a Jane Austen novel, what's the difference between her novel and a Flannery O'Connor story like this? Truly, what's the difference? If you read a Jane Austen novel, or take Old Man of the Sea, or um, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, I'm trying to go to works we've read, Dostoevsky's a little bit different because you know that Dostoevsky goes back into the past, into uh, Father Zosima's life. But in, in Jane Austen's world, um, she presents narratives in absolute sequence. One event following another. The, the world view behind Austen is that, um, that all things follow one from another in, 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 in keeping with the principle of causality and coherence. So it reflects a bourgeois world view. Does any god ever break into her narratives? I love Jane Austen. I mean, I, I really, she gave me my eyes, but, but she doesn't deal with evil. She does not. She doesn't deal with supernatural things. What she does deal with is beautifully, you know, managed. She, she, she just does an extraordinary job. But if you read her stories, you can't read them without seeing a neat line of sequence and causality. It assumes a sequence to things, a natural line of cause and effect. After Freud and after the modern world with this emphasis on looking inward, time is never the same anymore because we know that even if we're going through time, I go to work, I go to bed, I get up in the morning, I do whatever I do, one thing follows another. But all of us know that during those times that sometimes we would be doing something and suddenly a memory of some racking experience in the past will be a part of us. And linear time doesn't exist anymore. Suddenly the time the past jumps in and becomes real in that moment. So, for example, we got um, Benji and Faulkner. Remember when we did Sound of the Fury? Benji's an idiot. He can't go three seconds without something happen, happening that will trigger an automatic memory response. The, the narrative is absolutely disjointed. So in the modern novel, um, we, we no longer have... Um, a sequence incoherent with each event following another in a line of that makes sense, it's coherent to us. We've got fractured time, time falling back on itself, jumping forward. We've got hallucinations, nightmares, traumatic experiences interjecting themselves into the narrative so that um, narrative, the classic view of narrative no longer holds. Is that clear? When we read Violent Buried Away, you can't read five sentences without being taken back to the past. Young Tarwater is reflecting on what his great uncle taught him, and we, we, have, we have to work to pull things together. But Fred was right on. That one of the interesting, and this is, this is pure Boethius again. Do we ever learn anything about old tar water except through young tar water. No, they're all carried in him. So it's only through him that we keep getting all these experiences. So in narrative structure, we've got a linear narrative, a linear narrative structure, right? The, the story begins with old tar water dying and 
young tar water beginning to you know try to bury him dig a hole getting drunk and then coming out of his stupor and setting the old house on fire and then running and hitchhiking and getting a ride into the city so and we're going to follow him in all of his experience in the city one event following another so O'Connor is adhering to linear time but within that linear time are all these experiences that take us back into time with no cause-effect coherence. We have to put those things together. Is that clear? So in that sense, we're, we're, this is amazing. We're, we're being presented with a world that's faithful to its external realities. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But we're watching a, a world, if I can put it this way, we're watching a world of grace violating that world all the time. The title, The Violent Bear It Away. Can I have it done? The title is The Violent Bear It Away. Um, and you know that the title is taken from that passage. We're, I don't want to talk about it tonight. The, the title is taken from that passage in Matthew. I sent you the 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 section from the Bible in that letter I sent you guys today. From the day of John the Baptist, remember John's, John was beheaded, violently decapitated. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violent, and the violent bear it away. So we're not in a world, Jane Austen's world, in which one thing follows another in neat coherence. That is, that's that bourgeois world, it's that respectable world we've been watching so many of the great writers that we've been reading turn away from. Melville turned away from it, that Protestant sense of respectability in the North. You know, making money, making everything okay, nice and neat. Um, we saw it in Faulkner's The Town in the South. You know, when he's looking at that world, that's that bourgeois world in which the modern world is called to. But in Flannery O'Connor, um, we've got this linear sequence, one thing following another, but interjected in it are all these moments, um, automatic memories, violent memories, and yet memories that young Tarwater cannot escape, cannot ignore, of this old man constantly pushing redemption and Christ and um, all that he's doing with him. So let me stop in that. Any questions about what she's doing with method and, how, and why it's so important? Julie, go ahead. Did you? Yeah. You know, Bob, I'm so glad that I listened to you because I would have never taken away um, the way that that the um, the prophet is described in this book as uh, as a crazy, right. crazy person. Right, and right. I, I, I kind of took it as that. I, I'm glad that, <laughs> that I have somebody to kind of shed some light on that for you. Well, just, you know, hold on to this thought. I mean, it's so we've seen this before, and I, I where have we seen it? Somebody help me out here. We've read something where it was clear that a, that according to a Christian view, no, according to a modern scientific view, Eliot's um, abolition was one. But I, we, we read it somewhere else where, yeah, it was in Eliot's, in that essay on um, on dessert, where therapists look at Christians as insane. So this whole question of trying to help straighten a person out. What do you do when a person believes in Christ and you're a scientist and you believe anybody who believes that way is insane? 
that was the first time that I remember it's being so explicitly put. It was in that essay we read by Elliot. That all the, th- all the th- I mean, the danger that therapists face is that they could look at these people and think, because they've got these scientific views of what makes a person normal, that when somebody believes in Christ, um, they're not going to look at him very kindly or, you know, there'll be something wrong with him. But that's one of the one of the beautiful ironies about this is that this old man is so steeped in the Bible, and anybody who's brought up on scientific ideas will look at him as mad. And it's one of the we're going to have to talk about it. I mean, we'll have to nuance it, I think, some. Um, but it's one of the great themes of the story that there are these two worldviews in radical division with each other, conflict with each other. Um, any other comments or questions about the narrative technique, what she's doing, and why it's important? Reality's not neat. It's very neat in Jane Austen. I'm sure you all can see that. Her world is very neat. The modern world is not neat at all. Um, it's very violent. Very, very violent. Um... To, to actually to pick up Fred's point again and put it a little bit differently, it seems to me one of the themes of the, the story is um, you can't escape the past. The, the question is, can we redeem it? You've been hearing me harp on this since the Iliad. That one of the struggles every one of us has... But by the way, this is one of the things going on in our cultural war today. There are communities in America that would like to do everything they can to get rid of the past because it's all bad. What O'Connor is showing us, like Melville and so many of the other writers, is we cannot escape the past. The question is, can we redeem it? How do we do that? That's one of the great themes. Young Tarwater carries that past with him. So when we leave Powderhead and go to the city, as much as he wants to escape that uncle, he burned up the house, he ran away, he got drunk, he can't escape it. He's Something's got to happen with it. One of the, I think, one of the beauties of the theme. Some of the, some of the themes, um, we've just touched on them. Fred um, went to the heart of it. I think um, the passing on and receiving of an inheritance, a tradition. At the center of this book is this biblical tradition that's in danger of being lost, wiped out. That's that's explicit. That this old way is being lost. Um, it's one of the reasons people are so intense about getting rid of old tar water. The calling to be a prophet. Young Tarwater is has a calling. Um, he does everything. He he well, here. Can you put it any better? In the, in the modern, as moderns, we want to do whatever we want to do. And we think we're oppressed and something's wrong with us if somebody asks us to do something we don't want to do. Yeah, I mean, isn't that doesn't that characterize young Tarwater to a T? If if wherever old Tarwater does something, the young kid's response is he, he's going to get surly. He will deny it. He will reject it. He will do everything he can to defy it. He, he and he, if he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be a prophet better than old Tarwater for sure. It's part of the humor of the story. The city is a major theme, absolutely major. The, the shift from the first section to the second is from Powderhead, the country, to the city. And remember, we've talked about the city forever. The city came into existence uh, 
with the fall of man when um, God exiled Cain Cain left the presence of God and his son Enoch founded the first city so the city has always been paradoxical it's that it's an expression of that attempt on man's part to live without God so it shows all his greatness this these great gifts that God has given man but it shows this crack this fault at its center and it just because I don't want to miss these opportunities remember when we did Homer's the um, Odyssey do not forget that this is Homer the modern evolutionary theorist which cannot be proved it is not scientific it's a speculation it's a theory um, according to theory we 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 are products of an evolutionary process which we don't completely understand but the assumption is we're always getting better Homer shows the lie of that because remember or at least from his perspective um, remember in the Odyssey we learned that the Phaeacians and the Cyclops grew up side by side that the, in the, or, and, and by the way all the, all the biblical evidence is in support of this that the Phaeacian had a really good society even if it was flawed the Cyclops were bar barbaric cannibalistic so the two very different types of people, communities, grow up side by side. The Cyclops move, or the Falcons moved away to get away from those barbarians. What they did, if you if you remember our talks, they went to create a suburbia-like world. No conflict, no problems. Um, they wanted to master everything. And you remember what happened when they took Odysseus home. Poseidon piled a mountain on their ship um, because of their hubris. The Falcons. Um, approach the world in a spirit of being able to control, master everything by technology. I went over this when we did it, you know, their mastery of ships, of dance, art, everything. Um, the hubris, because the hubris is if you think you can master nature, whether you know it or not, you're, you're presuming that you can master the gods because the gods are in nature. So this conflict at the heart of the city has been there from the very beginning of all our literature and it's one of the major themes of of um, the violent buried away here the tendency of the scientific community to see Christians as mad not fitting in um, modern secular education versus an education in faith um, death in the story is an occasion for new beginnings the whole story comes out of old Tarwater's death. Um, it's it's the next step out of it, and what comes out of it. The theme of imprisonment and freedom, whether um, whether the the scientific world is imprisoning people in determinisms, or whether people are um, increasing their freedoms by turning to Christ and God as their source. And that stranger, you know, that, that stranger, that, or what's described as a stranger in terms of these thoughts that keep coming to young Tarwater that he describes in terms of a stranger. It's as if there's this presence, um, as if somebody's next to him or inside of him that keeps speaking to him. Who is that? How do we explain that stranger? Um, let, me, let me stop. Any, I want to just read a couple of passages 
and then ask for your thoughts. But let me let me stop. Any questions or comments on any of those things? And I just want to get us going um, because there's a lot that's really good in the story. But any questions or comments on anything set up to this point? I have a question. Can you hear me? I can, Jolie. You go. Okay. Always okay. Go. Um, the, um, I just wondered, you know, when you said uh, you were comparing Jane Austen's sequential novels and not dealing with evil um, to Flannery O'Connor's more modern treatment yeah. and uh, going back and forth, I thought, you know, I wonder who the most violent, uh, <laughs> if you will, female author, you know, um, of the modern time was, because it made me wonder how influenced by Billy Budd or by something else more violent was O'Connor. And, and I'm just, I'm just kind of trying to put the pieces together of, um, you know, the group that she was in of modern novelists. Right, and the, um, right. Right. And as a female, what, you know, what, you know, I guess made her able to drink with the boys because um, she was, you know, able to present this reality of a modern world or a city without God. And, right. Um, the next era of man without God. And I, I just wondered who else was in that category of, of female authors who, who did that. Julie, it's such a good question, really such a good question. Um, let me just give a, a thought, and it's, it's um, mostly um, speculative and vague. Uh, I can't substantiate it. Um, I, I can't name a, um, a writer more violent um, than O'Connor. You know that violence is at the heart of her novels because she believed that violence was an occasion for grace, that... that I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this next week when we begin. Remember, her vision of the world is that the world was under construction. And those violent moments that, um, that have a part in our life can, are often occasions for grace if we will see them that way. It's like Boethius, where you are in the circle. The Lear thing and the Heath, we went through it with Lear that, you know, that... Um, that as you approach the the heath, um, or as the characters approached it, they were moving away from a, a world of self deceptions and ambition and greed and violence and um, and hence we get the two centers. I I don't want to I don't want to anticipate this or make conclusions yet, but just think about the importance of Powderhead and why it's called Powderhead in the in the forest in the country. Where where is there a still point? Is there going to be a still point here? I don't know of a modern female writer who is um, as truthful as O'Connor in dealing with violence. Um, what I do know is I know that there are more women writers who are dealing more truthfully about violent things without projecting, you know, self-pity or a woman's a victim. It's, it's not doing that. It's that women are more open and faithful to the actual violence of the world and they bring to it a spirit of disinterest, not just grudges or axes or, you know. Um, to keep in mind in that context, I, I know that Flannery O'Connor was well-read. She read everything. She knew St. I mean, she read, 
She read the modern philosophers. She knows Heidegger, Hegel, or Hegel, sorry. Um, she knew the literary tradition. She was steeped in it. Um, she knew literature. So, um, and she was Catholic. So she could bring to her um, treatment of violence her belief in Christ on a cross, that that's the center of our faith. She didn't shrink from it. She saw violence as a moment of grace, just as it would have been for Christ. How many other female writers can bring to their treatment of violence that kind of faith? Um, Suzanne and I watched movies and some series, you know, and I'm aware more and more of how many increased numbers of women writers who are dealing openly with violence. I'm, I'm, I can't speak to how, what they see answering it. Flannery Cotter to me is unique because she believe, she has faith in a grace and she, she sees it's working in, in the world. So she's rare in that sense. I, I don't know how many, I know that women are far, increasing numbers of women are, are dealing more openly with violence in a way that nobody would have done in the 18th century, Jane Austen's time. Um, but I can't speak. I, you know, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I don't keep up, Julie. I'm, I, <laughs> I can't do that anymore. So I'm not, I, but I am aware that, um, that that's happening. So anybody else? Can we, um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, I'd like to just look at a couple of passages to you, or with you, before we leave. Um, there are um, numerous passages in which we're presented with the um, voice of the stranger. Um, on page 306, I just want to read a couple of passages here to pick something up. Page 306, it's early, early in the story, right at the very beginning. It's describing the old man seeing himself as a, as a prophet and feeling that he was called to bring Christ to the world when he knew that he would be spit on. These are his, these are the words of the novel, spit on, rejected, you know, vilified. Um, so the boy is um, being raised by his great uncle who's bringing that spirit to what he's doing. In lots of ways, he seems like an Old Testament prophet, not a Christian prophet, but an Old Testament. On 306, um, it's, do you all have this, the same, this, the three, by, because, no, I'm going to, I can't help you guys, because I can't give you the page, all I can tell you, this is in the first chapter, that's why I was hoping everybody would get this copy, so when I refer to a page, it would help, but I, I can't help those of you who don't have this edition, but in our, our copy, it's through six, in the middle of the page, it reads, he'd been called in his early youth, and had set out for the city, to proclaim the destruction awaiting a world that had abandoned its savior, he proclaimed from the midst of his fury, that the world would see the sun burst in blood and fire, and while he raged and waited, it rose every morning, calm and contained in itself, 
as if not only um, the world, but the Lord himself had failed to hear the prophet's message. Reminds me a little bit about Jonah getting angry at God. Remember when when the Ninevites are saved and he goes out and sulks <laughs> and then God comes to him and 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 helps him to see that what else should he expect? He did all of this work, you know, for the people um, he should be had. It shows you that Jonah really never quite got over his pride, even even though he had enough humility to speak to the to the Ninevites. The Lord himself had failed to hear the prophet's message. It rose and set, rose and set on a world that turned from green to white and green to white and green to white again. It rose and set, and he despaired of the Lord's listening. And one morning he saw to his joy a finger of fire coming out of it, and before he could turn, before he could shout, the finger had touched him, and the destruction he had been waiting for had fallen in his own brain and his own body. His blood had been burned dry, and not the blood of the world. This is one of those conversion moments where your pride, you know, in standing up for God hits you because you become a you, you become aware that God may have another plan and question yourself and whether you're working with it or not. On 320 later in the story, um This is when old Tarwater, if I remember correctly, goes to the city to speak with a lawyer to get him, um, I can't remember the legal term, the entail, I think, to get the deed of property to pass from uh, um, from Raber, to whom it was deeded, to young Tarwater, because he wants his um, great great nephew to receive it. And the lawyer can't do anything about it. And old Tarwater, here's again this conflict between an old world, a biblical world, a Christian world, and a modern legalistic, legalistic, um, bureaucratic world. The lawyer hears all of this and then says, 320, listen, his uncle said, all the time he was studying me for this paper. He, re- he is so angry at Raber because he realizes that like, like too many people, People look at other people as objects to control. All they have to do is understand them. If they can understand them correctly, they'll know how to act appropriately. And what what um, O'Connor's making clear is there's something essentially mysterious about each person that the modern psychology can't get to the center of a person's soul. We talked about that when we were reading Shakespeare's Hamlet because Polonius said... I can get to his mystery. And Hamlet's two friends said, I can pluck out his mystery. I know who they are. Shakespeare saw it early on. We think we think we understand people. We can understand them in a measure. It's a question of where, whether we can really get to the heart of things. And it, during the brief time that old Tarwater was raider with Raber, he knew that his nephew was studying him so he could use him as a as a test case in a paper to explain how the causes of all this misbehavior, these disorders that his uncle had. Listen, his uncle said, all the time he was studying me for this paper, turning secret tests on me, his own kin, crawling into my soul through the back door, and then says to me, uncle, you're a type that's almost extinct, almost extinct, the old man piped, barely able to force um, a thread of sound from his throat. You see how extinct I am? (laughs) It's another image of the way in which Christianity is fading from the world. It doesn't belong anymore. 
I want to go, um, if, if I can, if I can find this, to one last passage. Um, Suzanne was reading it today and was fond of us, and I want to pick up what she was doing. This is the point in the story where young Tarwater um, um, is ready to turn his back on this way of living. He's going to set fire, he sets fire to the house and then runs across the field to the highway where he will hitchhike a ride into the city. Okay? Now you know that in this first chapter there are constant allusions to the Old Testament. Moses, um, Joshua, when the, when the, um, the day stood still, I think the sun went out. Um, Daniel, when he faced down the lions, there are these constant allusions. And young Tarwater sees himself as being better than any of those men. He's going he's gonna to outdo his uncle and he's going to outdo those prophets. There, there, there are these constant allusions to Old Testament prophets. This is the one that ends the first chapter. Um, bottom of 332, he had a small box of wooden matches in his pocket. He crawled under and began to set small fires, building one from another and working his way out of the front, front porch, leaving the fire behind him, eating greedily at the dry tinder in the floorboards of the house. house. He crossed the front side of the yard and went through the rutted field without looking back until he reached the edge of the opposite woods. Now remember, he thinks the old man is still inside. And that he's burning, and he, this is really important, and he's burning his body. So in his own mind, he's doing what Raber wanted to do. He's destroying the house, he's destroying his great uncle. He's burning his body. And you know, according to Old Tarwood, that's a blasphemy. He wanted a Christian burial. He only asked two things of his, of his nephew, great nephew. Um, to, to burn that body. Would, would have been an outrage and a blasphemy in the old man's mind. So when Tarwater sets fire, in his mind he thinks he's doing <coughs> Raber's work for him, destroying the house, destroying the old man. He doesn't know that the Negro already buried his great uncle, and he's in the ground. So he turns away and rushes away from it with those thoughts in mind. Then he glanced over his shoulder and saw that the pink moon had dropped through the roof of the shack and was bursting, and he began to run, forced on through the woods by two bulging <coughs> silver eyes that grew in immense astonishment in the center of the fire behind him. He could hear it moving up through the black night like a whirling chariot. So as he leaves, um, he turns around and sees this fire. And by the way, it's going to be interesting because you remember when he gets the ride into the city, he reaches a point where he says to the truck driver, wait, you're going the wrong way, because he thought he was going to a fire. This is really important, this imagery of light and fire and seeing what, what people see with their eyes. They're going towards the city, and he sees the lights of the city glowing on the horizon, and he's assuming it's the fire, so he's returning to the fire. And he doesn't know that the fire is still behind him, that he's going to the lights of the city, assuming he's heading into a fire. What that... How we're to understand those lights or the metaphor of the fire, we'll have to wait till we see we get there. But but for a minute, I just want to just stop for this in a minute. How do you guys, what's your response to this moment when he looks around and he sees the fire rising into the evening sky? 
He could hear it moving up through the black night like a whirling chariot with two bulging silver eyes that grew in immense astonishment at the center of the fire behind him. How do you guys read that? How are we to take what's going on in this moment? Is that the beginning of the stranger that you're referring to? Is going to accompany him? I don't think so, Julie, because that stranger, that stranger has been with him from the second page, if I remember. But um, hold on to that. I mean, let's just... And the image of the chariot... What were those words in? What page is that? 332. He could hear it moving up through the black night like a whirling chariot. What does that call to mind for you guys? Elijah or Elisha that gets sucked up in his chariot. <laughs> yeah. And that movie, Chariot of Fire, Chariots of Fire. So what do you make of this moment? The young boy's fleeing. He's turning around. He thinks he's destroyed the old man. And yet he looks back and he sees these two silver things shining at him like two eyes. And it sounds like a chariot. What's, what do you guys make of that moment? I think the allusion is to um, Isaiah, you know, um, <coughs> when he leaves and Elisha assumes the mantle, the, the wait, wait, hookah, and the prophetic tradition is passed on. Right? That's that moment in Chariots of Fire in the, in the Bible when Elijah is, um, is assumed and Elisha is down on earth looking and the mantle has just been passed on. Has everybody seen the connection here? But how do you, I mean, what's O'Connor doing with the image? I mean, what do you make of it? Anything? These two glowing eyes and a sound like a chariot? God, she's amazing. She's amazing. <coughs> Jane Austen could not get close to this as much as I love her. And I do. I genuinely do. Karen, what do you make of it? I can't look at the picture behind you without thinking of Powderhead. <laughs> that, that, that you're in a good setting right now. <coughs> Tracy, you look like you're... No? Well, maybe it has something to do with... I mean, the, the, he thought his uncle was still in the house and that he had gone against his wishes and so these bulging eyes or his eyes yeah. staring at him from the kitchen table. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> and yet the probably the thing that, that's at the back of his mind is he a prophet or not maybe <laughs> yeah no it's good Fred any thoughts well my, my sense is uh, that the eyes are kind of a a major thing for O'Connor in this particular novel. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the first time we kind of get a sense that that is a key symbol, going to be a key symbol throughout the, the play. Yeah. And, you know, the the fire, it's, you know, if, if you kind of look at the title of the book, and you, you kind of think that 
violence is often the uh, predecessor to to grace. You kind of you kind of see perhaps that the young Tarwater is about to enter into that first uh, conversion or first first step to his violence beginning uh, that will ultimately lead to his grace in the end. Yeah, a lot here. Well, I'm just, I don't know about you guys, but I'm enthralled. I mean, I, I'm still at the beginning, so I'm a little bit embarrassed to be you know, here, leading you guys. When, but, um, but I'm glad to be here. It's a, it's a extraordinary story, and I'm glad to be reading it again. I'm glad to be doing it with you guys. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's a, it's a troubling story. It's very modern, very, very modern. It speaks so directly to us, and it speaks so directly to our calling. All of us, every one of us, is called to be priest, prophet, king. That's our call. We're not supposed to be comfortable in this world, and. <coughs> This is a story about anything but comfort. <laughs> so, um, anyway, enjoy it. I, I can't tell you how I'm looking forward to reading this. I cannot tell you. I'm genuinely looking forward to reading this. Um, I'm still in the first part, but I'm loving every page of it. There's so much here, so much here. Tracy, good luck on your, on your proposal. Genuinely good luck. If you would all say, do this, can you, for, for us? Tracy's writing a proposal, um, and I know it means a lot to her because I think you know how much she grieves about getting art to the world and how do you get it to a world that doesn't make a place for it when obviously she's making a huge place for it. Say a prayer for her tonight, would you, in her proposal? And for our earlier prayers and, um, and particularly for Karen's background, please. Um, I enjoy you guys. It's just a blessing. Um, um, the Easter wishes were deep and genuine. All of you guys have um, a good Easter season. Um, I hope you all carry forward everything that you began in Lent. So have a good week, okay? <laughs> you'd care what to do with you. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> okay, you guys. Um, have, a, have a good week. Bye. 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 Thanks. <laughs>